For months now, we have heard the horror stories, emergency rooms reducing their hours, in some cases, temporarily closing their doors. The reason, in most cases, is a lack of staff. And for the staff that is there, they're struggling with burnout. How do we fix things? The federal government blames provinces. Provincial governments blame the federal government. And around and around we go. Who is responsible when it comes to repairing the issues plaguing Canada's emergency rooms. Steve Morgan is a professor at the School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia. Professor Morgan, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. How bad are things in Canada's emergency rooms? Uh, They're quite bad. I I think anyone who has had uh, the misfortune of having to visit one in recent months, in fact, in the last couple of years, knows that they are overstrained. Um, in part as a consequence of the pandemic, and then partly as a consequence of the shortage of human resources that comes from a health system with a lot of provider burnout. And you've just touched on a couple of those reasons. Uh, For sure, we have been talking about it more in light of COVID, but what was the situation prior to March of 2020? Yeah, I mean, Canada's healthcare system, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit was... It was functioning. It was, it, it, it's got uh, some good parts to it. It's got some parts that are not as, as uh, high performing as it should be. Um, but on average, for the, the most serious needs that Canadians might have, uh, it was doing a reasonably good job of getting care delivered on time. But when it came to things like uh, the seasonal uh, influenza uh, outbreaks that would happen year after year, rather predictably, our emergency departments would get overcrowded in part because people have difficulty accessing family doctors and primary health care centers. And so you get, um, you know, the acute setting in the hospitals looking really bad, but it's actually a, a symptom of a more general access barrier that is access to uh, quality primary health care that would keep people essentially out of the emergency departments and out of those urgent care centers. So that was prior to COVID. COVID hits. Is that when we have this serious shift and we do start to see uh, more burnout, more uh, staff difficulty in having staff, keeping staff? So is was that the turning point? It is certainly uh, one of the things that has caused uh, a problem in our healthcare systems to go from manageable but not great to uh, quite concerning and, and possibly near a breaking point. And we don't have the data yet to know for certain the extent to which we are seeing an exodus from the healthcare workforce by people who have burned out and are choosing early retirement. But we do know that, that to some extent that is happening. We also know that like other workforces, uh, the healthcare workforce is experiencing uh, wave after wave of COVID infections, either themselves or in their families, causing uh, them to have you know, some absentee issues that also creep into the healthcare system. And as I mentioned before, um, access to family doctors, access to, to interdisciplinary primary health care centers, that has been a longstanding problem that has gotten worse with all of the pressures of the pandemic because as we all have experienced or many, many families have experienced, when you have regular health needs and then add on top of that uh, this now fairly regular infection with COVID, 
the demands on the system have spiked uh, by comparison to what would be a normal year or two or three, as we've now experienced with this pandemic. Canadians hold the universal health care system near and dear to their heart, even though we know there are lots of examples where we are seeing private health care working alongside public health care. Remind us, though, how it all began, because I'm, I'm sure Tommy Douglas, who is seen as the father of Medicare, wouldn't like to see what's happening right now. So uh, can you just give us a little bit of history when it ca- when it comes to this system that we really only got in the, what was it, the 50s? Yeah, uh, the Canadian healthcare system or Medicare, as we fondly refer to it, even though there's no actual program called Medicare here, but that system was uh, emerged in, in the post-war era as a, as a compromise between federal and provincial governments Because during the 1940s, there were a number of important commissions that were taking place in Canada about what kind of social safety net would we build following the war, just like other countries were doing, like in Britain and elsewhere, trying to uh, determine what kind of country we would become uh, at the end of the war. And in in that time, it was envisioned that Canada would have a universal comprehensive public health care system that would be more akin to the British NHS that they have in in England, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. Um, But instead, because of the the perennial bickering between federal and provincial governments that occurred in the 1940s, Canada developed Medicare in stages. Tommy Douglas is often referred to as the father of Medicare because he, he made He had Saskatchewan go first with the first big stage, which was hospital insurance. And then 10 years later, the federal government provided funding so that all provinces could do that. And then we got medical coverage for physicians uh, working in private practice. And uh, a couple years after Tommy Douglas did that in Saskatchewan, the federal government provided all provinces with financial support to make that a national program as well. But it, it was a compromise, and it's something that Canadians probably aren't quite aware of, and that is that our system is designed as a public insurance system, but the providers of healthcare, particularly physician services, are independent businesses that provide those services. They're just paid by government, but the government doesn't run their practices. And that was a big compromise of the 1960s. And it meant that in some sense, nobody's really in control of our primary healthcare system. That is the system which patients go to see a family doctor or a nurse practitioner. That system is very organic. It's very market-like in Canada. And um, that's a problem because we now know that we would like to have a, a more coordinated and integrated system that's based on teams, not independent medical offices, predominantly providing physician services only. Professor Morgan, your quote was, no one is really in control. This leads me to the, the next question. When we hear the bickering, and isn't it comforting to know that provinces and the federal government were bickering back even in the 40s, but when we hear the bickering between who's to blame, we do a lot of finger pointing and ultimately nothing seems to get done. So where do we go from here? Who is responsible to say we've got to make these changes? Yeah, so ultimately, according to the Constitutional Convention in Canada, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. So provincial premiers 
Uh, they can't pass the buck. The buck stops with them in terms of performance of their health care systems for their provinces. However, the federal government has historically, particularly in, in big moments of health system evolution, like the creation of universal insurance in the, in the 50s and 60s and the creation of the Canada Health Act in the 1980s, the federal government has played a really big role in providing governments, uh, provincial governments with money that would, would be given to them if and only if they meet standards for health system performance. And so right now, the provinces have to bear responsibility for managing their systems, but the federal government could, if they can strike a deal with the provinces, put enough money on the table that comes with strings, that comes with accountability for significant improvements in the system. And I can imagine right now there are all kinds of conversations between the federal and provincial governments right now. And as we know, by the way of the Premier's Council of the Federation requests, they just want money, but the federal government wants to give money with conditions. So before the break, Steve, we were talking about maybe the federal government then has to have strings attached to the money. When you say strings attached, is this different than what they were talking about before when provinces had to meet certain standards? Uh, It's different in the sense that now we're going beyond what we were talking about in the 1950s, 60s, and even to some extent in the 80s, which was just running a health insurance system that made sure that patients could get access to care without having to foot the bill themselves, or at least directly. Um, Now we're talking about system performance and and the way we organize and deliver health care we, the Canadian system desperately needs improvements there, and that ranges from how we organize and deliver care in our, our hospitals, our emergency departments, but also how we organize and, and deliver care in community health centers, primary health care, even things like mental health care. They're all part of this puzzle, so to speak, that we have to get the right pieces in the right places so that the system can perform as a system. So the strings that might be attached now are different. They're not just about paying bills. They're actually about how do we organize care and and how do we make sure that, um, you know, patients aren't left behind and that everyone has access to, for instance, a a primary health care center. You know, you, you talk about the Canada Health Act in the 80s. So here we are, 2022. Is this what we need truly is an overhaul as far as legislation uh, to put something in place that we are actually seeing those particular standards or demands met by the provinces in order to receive the funding? Yeah, what we need, I mean, right now, because the system is is in crisis. I mean, the pandemic has pushed it to the point where it is at a breaking point. And Canadians deserve better. British Columbians deserve better. So right now we need some quick fixes in terms of getting the health human resources in our hospitals, in our, in our, our, our primary health care system. Uh, that would require things like making sure the conditions of work in hospitals and for nurses and, and physicians and other uh, staff of hospitals are good, making sure that we can expedite credentialing of people who might be qualified for working in our healthcare system. Perhaps they've been internationally trained or perhaps they had retired and we might be able to bring them back into the workforce as a short-term measure to deal with the crisis today. But then we're going to need plans 
to invest in the system so that information is shared better across the system, so that patients are better managed across the different components that any patient knows they interact with, and so that we have robust primary health care systems and robust uh, urgent and primary health care centers that are well-staffed and not just sort of, you know, this sort of skeleton staff, but, you know, really uh, integrated teams of healthcare providers. Those kinds of things are the, are the longer term. That's going to be the kind of thing that a, a province could make meaningful headway on in, in say, four to six years. But you're, you're going to be looking at the kinds of transformative change to make Canada's healthcare system high-performing by comparison to other countries abroad, that's going to take um, five to ten years. Immediately, we've got to do things to fix the problems that we have right now, but we have to have a plan, and we have to have investment. I, I talk, I teach many courses uh, in, in health policy to many different levels of students, and I talk to them all about the fact that what we kind of need right now is the equivalent of a post-war investment in the system again right now. And thinking of the pandemic as being the war that we need to recover from and build proper, robust and accountable programs following this. I mean, to the average Canadian, the way they see the broken system is that it's taking me eight to 12 months to get my knee replaced. And we have seen provinces with their health care funding look at opportunities to work alongside private clinics. Uh, so the public system is still paying, but at least it's dealing with those wait lists. Is that a, a workable quick fix because we will often hear critics say, wait a second, it's, it's, you're wrecking our public system. I feel some provinces are just trying to say, we're trying to do something immediately here. Yeah, you know, the, the, the existence of private surgical centers, has, it, they've been around for, for many years. And we have to remember, most medical practices are private businesses. So private health care delivery in the Canadian healthcare system is nothing new. It's It's been around since the origins of the system. The thing that isn't the solution for for all of us in, in British Columbia or across the country is private payment for care. Because one of the proposals is, well, what if we let some people pay a little bit of extra so that they get care really quickly, and hopefully that would take pressure off the rest of the system? That sounds intuitive and, and reasonable, but international evidence actually shows that when you allow that to happen, the wait times and the delays in what is left of the public system get worse. So utilizing private delivery of care with public payment is perfectly reasonable. We've done it many, many times. But going that extra step and saying, well, why don't we let people compete you know, as patients by buying their way to the front of the line, that's not the kind of solution that's going to be uh, either affordable or equitable for, for British Columbians or can Canadians as a whole. Yeah, and any province that does go down the route that I'm talking about has to be clear in saying, no, this isn't someone jumping ahead. This is still public dollars going to a private clinic. Uh, I want to touch on uh, another issue when it comes to, obviously, the shortage of family doctors. And the fact that the shortage of family doctors and nurses are seen even more so in rural hospitals. How do we address that issue? 
Yeah. So, you know, human resources challenges in Canada are there's two levels of challenge. There's the challenge we have in our our major cities and urban uh, centers where there there is often a challenge for people to get a family doctor or to have a primary health care center that they're attached to and that they might see a nurse practitioner at. But then there's that extra level of challenge when you're talking about rural and remote locations uh, throughout the province and even just northern locations with big population masses like Prince George um, have some difficulty attracting and retaining the kinds of human resources you want within those systems. Again, the solutions to this are if you try a quick fix, you're going to have a temporary solution and you'll be back in the same problem again. The solutions tend to be longer term about uh, adequate training and recruitment of people actually from the rural settings throughout Canada, throughout British Columbia. Recruit your students for medical school from those communities because they're often likely to want to go back and practice in their home communities and retention is better there. So there are some solutions that you can do fairly quickly, like use internationally trained uh, medical graduates in rural and remote locations. But that's only a temporary solution. The longer term things require a more uh, more sophisticated uh, uh, strategy for, again, attracting and retaining uh, the, the people who you want to be working in the system all across your province. Well, we've been talking about it for a long time, and let's hope we start to see some of these solutions. Uh, Professor Morgan, thanks so much for your time this evening. Thank you.